Let us pray. Lord, as we pause now to open our hearts, to open our ears, to open our eyes, to the movement, to the word that you have for us today, we ask that you clear away all the distractions, all the things that might compete for our attention, for our focus. We ask that you just remove them from us so that these words that were written, these words that are about to be read, that they will come alive for us, that your truth, your love, and your grace will be revealed through them, and that they will somehow transform us by the power of your Spirit. Bless the reading of your word, bless the hearing of your word, and bless us now as we gather and we wait in your presence. In the holy name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at her feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We've been looking at the book of Acts, talking about how it it acts as a blueprint for the church. And it doesn't uh, take uh, much insight to look around at the church, uh, especially the church in America, and see the ways in which uh, we have declined and the ways in which we are are no longer the the body of Christ in the way that we used to be. At least uh, it doesn't seem that way. And so... When we look at the book of Acts, we see how the church was born, how it grew, how the Holy Spirit was a part of everything that happened, and and we return to this to sort of get an idea of how we can uh, align ourselves once again with the will of God and with uh, His plans for His kingdom here on earth. Now this story here about Ananias and Sapphira, it used to really bother me. Uh, I, I... 
I wished that it wasn't in the New Testament. I would read it and say, this doesn't look very merciful of God. This doesn't look like grace. I mean, so what? Ananias and Sapphira didn't give all of their money to the church. None of us do, right? None of us have given everything we have to the church. But we don't fall over dead because of it. And so this, this, this passage bothered me for, for years. And in fact, I thought about it uh, at, at one time. I, I thought, well, this seems very Old Testament, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Because, I mean, we, we tend to think of the Old Testament. That's when God is, he acts as, as a judge. He acts swiftly. There are immediate consequences and there's law and, and, and sovereignty and all of this. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus and we have grace and we have forgiveness and restoration. But as I've said before, that's, that's not really an accurate uh, interpretation of Scripture. Remember, in the Old Testament... There is still grace. We've talked about this many times in here before. There is still grace, the theme of grace, the message of God's love and grace woven all through the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we still see the theme of judgment and we still see God's sovereignty woven through it. And so you don't have Old Testament sovereignty, judgment and New Testament forgiveness and grace, although we sometimes think of it that way, in reality, in both the Old and New Testament, you have God's sovereignty and judgment and God's love and grace working together. With that in mind, we're going to look at this, uh, this, this passage, this story of Ananias and Sapphira today, and, um, and we're going to see that this is actually a message of hope. That may seem funny to you right now, but, but just stick with me and, and we will see how this is actually, it is a warning for the church today, but it is also a message of grace and a message of hope for us. First of all, let's look at who the central figure of this passage is. When we read it, we, we say, okay, Ananias, he's the central figure, right? Or, or maybe Sapphira. No, it's Peter. Peter was the one who threw out the whole passage. First he's talking to Ananias, then he's talking to Sapphira, and then he makes the, uh, the statement. Uh, he, he confronts them about what they did, and then he makes the statement to Sapphira, your, your husband just fell over dead, and then people who carried him away, they're getting ready to carry you away. So Peter is at the center of this story. And if you notice everything we've talked about in Acts up until now, who's at the center of the story? Peter. Ever since the ascension, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on them. There was a rush of a mighty wind. They all started speaking in different languages. People gathered around, and Peter started preaching, and thousands were added to their number. And then Peter and John, they go to the temple. They see the lame lame man begging, and what do they do? They heal him. Then people gather around, and what happens? Peter preaches to them. And then Peter and John are arrested, and they're brought before the council. They're brought before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're amazed at Peter and John's boldness, and so they let them go. And then the early church, the, the followers, are inspired by Peter and John, and they pray for the same type of boldness. So all through this, we see that Peter is a consistent figure in the early days of the church. There's a reason for that. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, whose name wasn't Peter yet, this was actually when he got the name Peter, his name up till this point was Simon Barjona, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, now you are Peter. Peter means the rock. And then Jesus says, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this statement that Jesus made, there are two different parts of it that have both caused a little bit of controversy in the church over the years. They've been interpreted in different ways. The first controversy is, who is Jesus talking about when he says this rock? Well, to me, it's obvious. He names Peter, he names Simon Peter, which means rock. And he says, you are now Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, some people have come back and said, well, no, Jesus, what he was really saying is, is that the rock is the confession that Peter made. That, that Peter made the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that confession is the rock. And so Jesus told Peter, you are the rock because you were the first to make that confession, and on that confession I'm going to build my church. Well, I, I can understand maybe that interpretation, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus called Peter, Peter, the rock. And then he said, on this rock I will build my church. And when you look at Acts, you see at least up until this point in the beginning... Peter is the central figure. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was building his church on Peter's actions. He was using Peter here. Okay, the second uh, area of, or the second part of this statement that gets misinterpreted is what did Jesus mean by the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? He says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's been understood in a number of ways over the centuries. One use uh, or one interpretation says that the gates just simply means the strength. Uh, In the biblical times, a city was known by the strength of its gates. That was its surest line of defense. And if it had weak gates, then you knew that it wasn't a very strong city. So whenever someone said, well, that city uh, has its gates, and they would talk about by the gates of Jerusalem, by the gates of Jericho, by whatever city it was, the city was known by the strength of its gates. So what Jesus was saying was that the strength of hell cannot prevail against the church. There's one interpretation. Another says, well, what he really means is that the gates of hell represent death. And Jesus saying, death itself will not prevail against the church. Okay? And then there's another interpretation that dates back to uh, the, the 6th century at the Second Council of Constantinople that says the gates of hell represent all the things that lead to death. Heresy, blasphemy, idolatry, all of the things, the pathways, the doors into hell that lead to eternal death. Jesus was saying those things will not destroy the church. Now I think there's probably truth in all of those interpretations. But I want to take that interpretation and I want to apply that to this passage because what Jesus is saying if, if that's how we understand it, is that the things that the devil can do within the church, the things that he can bring up, idolatry, heresy, the things that he, he sneaks in among us, may lead to death 
and may lead to hell, may lead us off the God-ordained path, but they will not destroy the church. They can't. The gates of hell will not prevail against the will of God, against the body of Christ. So if we take this and we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we start to see some things about this passage maybe we don't notice on the surface. Because their sin was not simply withholding some of their money. That was not the sin. As I said, all of us have done that. All of us have failed to give 100% of our earnings. That's not the sin here. The sin was idolatry and heresy and blasphemy. And you say, how is that? Well, first of all, if you look at the end of chapter 4, you see that there was a man named Barnabas. This is the very end of chapter 4. And it says, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas gets honorable mention in the early church, right? Because he did this, this generous thing. And then, the very next verse is chapter 5, verse 1. It says, but a man named Ananias. That's how it starts. So it talks about Barnabas does this thing. And he gets recognized for it. And then a man named Ananias decides that he and his wife are going to do something. And and, and this isn't just, well, let's give to the church. Let's do likewise. Let's sell our land and give to the church. No, it says they contrived it. They came up with a plan. And that plan was to make money, to get themselves wealthy off the proceeds. Real estate's an investment, right? Right? So they take their land and they sell it and they get money. And they say, listen, what we can do here is we can get wealthy. We can sell what we have, make a huge profit, and then we can take a little bit of that and give it to the church and pretend that that's why we did it. And then we'll get get honor in the church. We'll have prestige, just like Barnabas. We'll be mentioned and, and, and people will look at it and we'll have power. And we see that in the church today still. When people give just simply so they can be uh, counted among the more powerful people of the congregation. I'm not saying that happens here, but it happens in other churches. I've seen it. Where people give just simply to elevate their own status, their own position within the church. And so what Ananias and Sapphira were doing here was they said, we can get wealthy. We can uh, better ourselves financially, and we can also raise ourselves to a position of prominence and power. That is idolatry, because they were not serving Christ. They were not serving the needs of the church. They were not doing God's will. They were not working with the Holy Spirit. They were were, uh, serving themselves by placing wealth and power as their idols. Okay, that's idolatry, but how is that heresy? Well, the word heresy simply means a belief that goes against orthodox doctrine. A belief that goes against orthodox doctrine. In the church today, we have uh, something called the prosperity gospel. Where people uh, preach that if, if you're in the church, if you're, you're serving God in a certain way and you're praying a certain prayer, God is going to help make you rich. That's called prosperity gospel. And it's heresy. It's a belief that goes against the gospel, against orthodox doctrine. 
Now, sure, Ananias and Sapphira, they were not themselves preaching prosperity gospel, but they obviously believed it. They believed they could use the church to elevate themselves, to catapult themselves into power and into wealth. And so they, had, they were guilty of idolatry and heresy, both of which are gates of hell. They are pathways that lead to eternal death. And then, of course, they were guilty of blasphemy because they were working contrary to the Holy Spirit and lying to the Holy Spirit at the same time, trying to to deceive the church. And as Peter said, you're not just lying to me. You didn't just lie to the church. You're lying to God. You are working against the Holy Spirit while trying to convince the Holy Spirit that you are working with it. And that is blasphemous. So we see that they tried to benefit themselves financially while grabbing power and glory and doing it at the church's expense, at God's expense, and making a mockery of what the Holy Spirit was trying to accomplish in the process. Now I want to ask you, what would have happened if they had succeeded? What would have happened if God allowed this to take place, to go unchecked? Well, the church would look a lot different today. The book of Acts would look a lot different. Because keep in mind, this is the early church. This is the first days of the church. This is before the Gentiles were ministered to. This was before Paul. This was before any missionary efforts. This was the, 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 the birth of the church. That was this era. And God was, was saying, this thing that's happening while my Holy Spirit is trying to build the church, this, th- I'm not going to allow this. I'm not going to stand for this. Not on my watch. If they had succeeded, it would have placed a curse on the whole church. And you, if you don't believe me, let's just think about it. Ananias and Sapphira, through their giving, would have been elevated to a place of power and prominence, right? The, the, the book of Acts talks about Barnabas in a very positive light. So Ananias and Sapphira, if this had, had gone unchecked, they would have influenced what was said. They would have influenced the narrative. They would have influenced how the church worked. The book of Acts probably would have ended up being all about them. And God said no. That's not how my church is going to be formed. That's not how it's going to grow. That's not the message people are going to receive. This heresy of prosperity gospel, this use of of using my church and my name to, to advance your own kingdom, that's not what's going to happen. If it had happened, it would have cursed the church. If you look back at the Old Testament, uh, there, there's a story in the book of Joshua where Joshua has just led the uh, children of Israel into the promised land. And even though they're in the promised land, there's still some battles to be fought. Okay, Just like in the New Testament, the church has been established. But just because the, the church has been established, they're, they're in the spiritual promised land now, there's still some battles to be fought, right? Okay, in the Old Testament, Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. And then they, they were battling with these people, that this, this country called Ai. And, and in Israel, part of the, the, Isra, uh, the Israelite army, there was this one sorry joker named Achan. Now, I wish that wasn't his name. In fact, I wish he had had any other name in the world besides that. But that was, that was his name, was Achan. And he decided that... 
He was going to go against what God said, which was all the spoils that you collect from this, this, this battle, they will go to the temple. And Achan decided that he would keep some for himself. And, and the seventh chapter of Joshua says that the entire nation of Israel was cursed because of what Achan did, because of his dishonesty, because of his idolatry, because of his defiance against what God wanted. The entire nation of Israel was cursed. And this is similar. The church that, that Christ was, that, that the Holy Spirit was, was, was trying to establish on earth could have been derailed, could have been cursed by the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, their idolatry, their heresy. And that's why God could not let this happen. That's why God said, not on my watch. Because I am trying to build my church upon the rock, upon Peter, upon the one who knew me, who confessed his, his faith in me, his belief in me, the one who proclaimed that I am the Christ, the Son of God. I am trying to build my church. And these people that are coming in and trying to catapult themselves into wealth and power, that's not going to happen. You see, there is heresy, there is blasphemy, there is idolatry running rampant in the church today. You don't have to look very far to see where there are preachers who are using prosperity gospel. They are using the church to get rich themselves. But I'm going to tell you, that stuff will always be found out. It will always come to a screeching halt. They may appear successful for a time, but it will be found out eventually. Because God is not going to let the gates of hell those paths that lead to destruction, those paths that lead to eternal damnation, he's not going to allow them to destroy his church. We talk a lot uh, about the state of the church. We wring our hands sometimes and talk about the church is in decline, the United Methodist Church isn't what it used to be. Uh, we talk about how even our own congregation, uh, there's, there's a lot of empty pews, it's not what it used to be. And we look around and we say, we say this is an epidemic all across America. All the, all the churches are in decline. And, and, and there's certainly a case to be made for that. I'm, I want to read you some numbers. The United Church of Christ, since the 1960s, has declined 52%. The Episcopal Church, since the 1960s, the membership has declined by 49%. The Presbyterian Church, since the 1960s, has declined by 47%. The United Methodist Church, since the 1960s, has declined by 33%. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, since the 1980s, has declined by nearly 30%. But there are denominations in America that are growing, and not just growing, but growing exponentially. The Presbyterian Church in America, which is an offshoot of the Pre Presbyterian Church, has increased by 790%. The Evangelical Free Church of America since the 1960s has grown by 749%. The Assemblies of God since the 1960s has grown by 430%. The African Methodist Episcopal Church since the 1950s has grown by 114%. And the Southern Baptist Convention since the 60s has grown by 46%. That's just in America. America. 
Now, when you look at that, what does that tell us? That tells us that the church is in decline in certain areas, right? But it's growing exponentially in other areas. Why is that? It's because maybe from the inside, there is blasphemy, there is heresy, there is idolatry creeping in. And God has said, no, not on my watch. The gates of hell will not prevail. I will not allow this to run rampant. I will bless these congregations where the Holy Spirit is free to reign the way that I designed it to. Even the United Methodist Church, I mentioned in America that that it is down by uh, 33% since the 60s. But that's not true of it globally. Globally speaking, we are now up to nearly 13 million members. And the church in the United Methodist Church in Africa and in the Philippines both have grown between 5 and 8% just in the past few years. You see God is still working in the church. The church is still growing. The kingdom of God is still thriving where the Holy Spirit is allowed to reign. In those places where heresy and idolatry and corruption and greed have not taken root, the Holy Spirit is growing elsewhere. Anytime you see decline in the church, anytime you see a local congregation or, or you see a, uh, a, maybe even an entire denomination struggle, It's usually because something has crept in that God is just simply not going to allow. Now, this is not said for vindication purposes. I'm not trying to uh, say one denomination is better than the other, or or if you have one set of values or beliefs, then you you are more in the right than somebody else. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not uh, implying that. But what I am saying is that God is in control of the church. And no matter what kind of heresy or idolatry we allow to creep in, we are only shooting ourselves in the foot. We're not harming God at all. You see, in America, we have a real problem with heresy. We we take this thing that we want to believe, that we want to be true, and we elevate that and, and we say, okay, let's make that part of the church now, because that's what we would like. Or we take idolatry, these things that compete for our attention, that take our eyes and our minds and our hearts off of Christ. We take that and say, let's place that on the pedestal. That's the problem we have in our nation. That's why so many churches are in decline. And God is not going to allow that to continue just like he didn't allow Ananias and Sapphira to get away with what they were doing. Whenever that starts to happen in the church, God will strike it down. Because the gates of hell will not prevail. So this message is one of warning. But it is also one of encouragement. Take heart in knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against church. The gates of hell, blasphemy, heresy, idolatry, corruption... Those are the doors that lead to death. But they cannot prevail against the body of Christ. In the same way that physical death could not defeat Jesus Christ while he lived on earth, spiritual death cannot defeat, or the ways of spiritual death cannot defeat the body of Christ now. 
They may destroy a local congregation. They may destroy a particular institution or maybe even an entire denomination. But it will never destroy the body of Christ in the world, period. God is serious about this. And this this passage here of Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira lets us know exactly how serious he is. He will not tolerate corruption and heresy and blasphemy and idolatry coming from within his church. He will not tolerate someone using his church and his name for, his, for their own personal power grab. He will overthrow it. Can you see now how this story, while yes, it is one of warning, it is also one of hope. It is also one of grace. Because it is a message from God to say that his will will prevail. His body will always be his body. The gates of hell will not overthrow it. Praise be to God that even when we try to sneak in our own personal agendas, our own heresies, our own idolatries, he will have none of it. And when you see one church die, there is another one growing somewhere because the gates of hell cannot defeat the God of heaven and earth. Let us pray. Lord, your words are heavy. Your words bring judgment. Your words bring warning. But your words also bring grace. And they bring hope. And they bring life and light to all of those who cry out to you. Lord, we thank you that you will not tolerate corruption. And we pray right now for all those churches that have allowed idolatry and have allowed heresy and blasphemy to creep into their their congregations. We pray for those pastors who who have used the church for their own uh, desires, for their own wants. Lord, we turn all of those churches, all of those congregations and those pastors over to you. And we ask that your will will prevail where they have tried to force their will against your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you guide us always, that you give us wisdom, that you give us clarity, that you give us hope, and that we follow the ways of your Spirit and not the ways of our own flesh. Lord, we thank you that the gates of hell cannot defeat your body, which is here on earth. We ask that you enable us, empower us, that you ready us to be your hands and feet so that we will not fall victim, we will not uh, fall for the ways of evil that try to do us from within. Lord, allow your spirit to reign upon us, among us, within us, and through us so that we may grow in likeness of Christ and we may grow in fellowship with each other and that we may grow your kingdom wherever we are. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. We sang, uh, this is not a typo in, in the, uh, the bulletin, we sang the hymn, We Gather Together for our hymn of preparation. 
But in light of the sermon that, that you just heard, we're going to sing it again. And I want you to pay a, a special attention to the second and the third verse when we consider the nature of the church, the future of the church, and what God has in mind for the church. So our closing hymn today will be uh, We Gather Together. Hymn number 41 in the uh, Cokesbury Hymnal. Please stand if you are able.